Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Crisis Management. I'm Alicia Sikirska, and this is a show dedicated to helping businesses navigate their way through the coronavirus pandemic. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about the shakeup that we're seeing in Ottawa. Goodbye, Bill Morneau. Hello, Christia Freeland. We're also going to be talking about the latest numbers from the Canadian Real Estate Association. And we're going to dig into mental health issues in the workplace and what employees should be doing employers and employees should be doing uh, through COVID-19. Now, before we discuss those topics, I want to introduce you all to Mark Satov. He is the business strategy expert and founder of Satov Consultants, and he's here to help provide ideas and solutions for businesses that are dealing with the pandemic. Mark, I watched last week's episode with Jeff, who did an excellent job hosting. Uh, It was super interesting, but I'm really glad to be back. There is so much to talk about today. There's so much to talk about, but can we start by talking about what you did while you were gone? Just a little. Yes. So yeah, I uh, went to a socially distant wedding. Um, It was, yeah, held in a park. It was originally supposed to be a destination wedding, but they obviously had to change their plans. So um, there was about 20 of us. We met in a park, all kind of spaced out, watched the ceremony. And yeah, it was, it was, a, you know, people are making adjustments. It was, it was lovely. I bet it was the best COVID-19 wedding you'd ever been to. Well, yes, it was the best and the only right. one. Um, but let's shift the conversation away from weddings to breakups. Yes, that's my segue. Um, The last 24 hours has been just a whirlwind for the Liberal government. Uh, Finance Minister Bill Morneau has resigned. He is going to be replaced at any moment now uh, by Deputy Prime Minister Christian Freeland. And that's not all. Several outlets have been reporting that uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is going to prorogue Parliament, basically trying to hit the reset button after this we controversy and start a new session in October with a throne speech and potentially even a budget. Um, On a normal day, these announcements are a big deal. I think it's especially huge considering we are in the midst of a pandemic-induced recession, and there's just so many questions about what a recovery is going to look like. Um, And so We haven't seen so far a huge reaction in the markets, but I'm sure that the business community is keeping a close eye on this. And um, I mean, do you think businesses are going to be worried considering there is so much change happening in the finance ministry, which is really tasked with the recovery for the economy here? Well, I know it's it's a loaded question. I mean, I I, I think uh, you know the first thing is like they would I think develop a view based on why they think the change happened. So in other words, is Bill leaving because of the policies that he was responsible for, or is he leaving because he was embroiled in scandal? And I think it's much more the latter. I think it's about the scandal. I don't think it's about the policies. Having said that, I think it should have been about the policies. I think the policies in the beginning were good. Uh, but I think they did not get refined enough. Uh, they lacked detail and they lacked 
the type of thought that was necessary. I think in a government like that at a time like this, he doesn't really own that himself. I think they made those decisions all together. I think he's responsible for, you know, putting the numbers together with, you know, his Secretary of State Finance and his Treasury Department, etc. But I think they all made the decisions on policy together. I don't know that I could, that I could speak for the whole business community. Uh, I like Minister Freeland. I think she's smart. Uh, and I don't, I'm not trying to be funny. I don't think that Justin Trudeau's cabinet is really full of super high impact, smart individuals. And I think she is a shining star there. And so overall, and I voted for her, she's in my riding. And so overall, I have confidence in her ability to make decisions, be transparent, uh, et cetera. What I don't know, because I don't think she, I think she doesn't come from a business background as much as Bill Morneau does. I believe she was uh, in journalism and other things. The question is, does she have the background and or will she be surrounded by uh, other people. And I think Mark Carney, you know, I think the rumors there, you know, will he play some sort of advisory role? And I think he gives the business community a lot of confidence. I, I think that, you know, oftentimes in business and in government, you may want to change the policy, but it looks funny for the existing person to change the policy. But what you sometimes do is you bring in a new person and the new person says, okay, I'm here. I now have my own opportunity to put my stamp on what's going on. And so she may do that again. She may get advice from others. She may have her own ideas. Uh, just because she wasn't in a business career doesn't mean she doesn't know just as much about business as he does. So it's a little bit of Although a Although she was, see. to be clear, a business journalist. Oh, so it's, it's not like she 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 doesn't know anything yeah. about, you know, the economy and, and, and the economic policy. She has written extensively about it. Okay. And I do think you're right. She was immediately one of the top contenders for this job. Um, very much a shining star in that in the cabinet. Um, so we'll see. We'll see how the policies change. And I think people and businesses especially will be keeping an eye on what they propose, what the government proposes in terms of this recovery. I know that was a criticism when they had their last fiscal update. People wanted to look ahead more because this is such a unique recession and um, not anything like what we saw in 2008. So, you know, whether you can solve it with infrastructure projects, how you get that stimulus spending. Um, there's lots to watch for here. And so we'll definitely keep a close eye on that. Um, kind of related to this, I do want to talk about how people and consumers are feeling about the state of the economy. It turns out pretty good. <laughs> According to a Bloomberg Nano's uh, Consumer Confidence Index, Canadians are feeling more confident about the state of the economy. The index hit above 50 for the second straight week, and it's just the second time that it's actually hit above 50 since March. Um, clearly, people are becoming more confident as businesses reopen, people are spending more money, bigger purchases happening, like in the housing market. What do you think? Should Canadians be feeling good about the state of the economy right now? I think they should be feeling good about the long-term state of the economy. I think uh, we'll talk about this and we'll talk about this with regard to housing. This is an event with a period of time, I don't want to say a prescribed period of time because we don't know what that period of time is, but we're now able to put some boundaries around what that period of time is. And so I think, unfortunately, uh, this will be a little bit of a, a difference between the haves and the have-nots, right? And so uh, I think if you have financial sustainability and money is very cheap, it's actually easy for you to be confident because you can ride out the storm over the next year or if a year becomes two, you can ride out the storm, you can make purchases, uh, depending on what business you're in, you could run your business. And it's easy for you to say, you know, like I say, money is cheap and therefore I'll just look forward to two years. It's different than 2008 and nine. And in that case, 
we had a structural problem with the economy and we needed to solve it. Now, again, I think there, uh, the government stepped in and solved it very quickly uh, and did a good job. It took a while for consumer confidence to come back. And so I think the fact that consumer confidence is coming back quicker now is uh, due to the facts that, you know, we can sort of see an end even if we don't know the actual date. We also have some, some good news here and there. I mean, I think we have positive developments on the vaccine, uh, which I think give people va- uh, confidence. I think they're uncertain. I think in November, it's going to be a different ballgame. I mean, I think I've talked about this in the mm-hmm. past. In November, we're going to know three things. Did, the va- did one of the six vaccines pass phase three? And I don't mean one of the Russian vaccines. I mean, one of the ones in the Western <laughs> world where we have more faith in the testing. Uh, is Trump still in power? Uh, and we hope not. Uh, and did school, did go, did back to school work? Uh, and I think that is actually the greatest source of anxiety today for parents, and mm-hmm. it should be for businesses as well if they know the connection. So I, I think we'll see confidence move up and down as we did in 2008 and nine. It did move up and down when you had big events, you know, positive events, mm-hmm. et cetera. Yeah, and it was years that it was going up and down. It wasn't exactly a steady rise. It was very bumpy um, along the way. I remember t- discussing that on an earlier episode. Um, but you did mention, uh, you know, the haves and haves nots. For some people, it is a good opportunity given interest rates are so low. So let's talk about the housing market. The um, Canadian Real Estate Association released its July numbers this week, and that data does not point to the fact that we are in a recession at all. Um, July saw a record amount of home sales, record high prices. Um, there's obviously a lot at play here. I think certainly pent up demand from the first few months of the pandemic, as well as the low interest rates. But the numbers are still pretty remarkable. I mean, what do you think we should be or we should keep in mind as we look at what's happening in the Canadian housing market? I think I probably shared in one of the earlier episodes that I had a decision to make about my real estate. Was I going to pare it down or refinance? And when you look at the numbers, you just say, well, it doesn't make sense to not refinance when money is so cheap. And so, you know, I'm uh, I'm in the portion of society uh, that is not living paycheck to paycheck. And so I have a little bit more flexibility than others. And I'm very thankful for that. Um, and so you could sort of say if, if I'm part of the community that is trading homes or keeping homes, you could understand that prices are not falling and that volume is still trading. Because uh, when you think about an asset, and this could be a a piece of real estate or a company uh, or stock in a company, if you think about money being cheap, it's not only relevant because there's an inverse relationship between carrying costs today and uh, the value of the home. But you could sort of say, okay, if we have this two-year period, call it, where uh, the value accretion is not, you know, the value increase is not going to happen and there's even a value decrease. But a home is a long-term asset. You're not buying a home for two years, right? And so you sort of look at it and say, I'm buying a home for 10 years, right? Some people buy starter homes for five, but generally speaking, you're buying for 10 years or more. If, if interest costs are 2%, the fact that you actually are buying it today instead of waiting two years for the COVID-19 crisis to be over, is immaterial because we're talking about an extra 4% carrying costs. Now, again, you have to be in the percentage or the portion of society that has the income to support the payments. Uh, And by the way, I looked at the numbers. There's a 14% year over year increase in price. But when you adjust it, and it's not perfect, but when you adjust it to say, what's the like for like comparison, I think it's closer to 7%. But 7% is still Mm -hmm. a lot. Yeah, 
And I think when you take out Toronto and Vancouver, it completely right. <laughs> changes because obviously those markets are just um, on fire. Right. Uh, it's also, I think it's also another, where a lot of people live, though. Yes, of course. I, and I think um, it will be interesting to see what happens going forward. There's been some stories. I know Bloomberg had one about um, Canada's immigration numbers in the last quarter, and they're down significantly. And that has been part of the fuel for the housing market. Um, so we'll see what happens, I think, going forward. Um, and perhaps when the government funding and different um, financial aid uh, goes away. <laughs> what happens to the housing market? I think there's still lots of questions there. I, I think so. My view, uh, I am pro-immigration in this country for a million reasons. Uh, and one of them is economic growth. Uh, we cannot uh, sustain economic growth with a shrinking population. Uh, immigrants work harder, spend more, take more chances. There's so many reasons why if you just, even if you'd want to put the personal uh, sort of moral uh, aspect aside, uh, you sort of just look at the economy and immigration is good. And if you own real estate in a small city that is partially landlocked, immigration is really good. And I believe that uh, immigration will take a pause because I think it's hard for mm -hmm. people to uh, immigrate when they can't travel. And I think there's just a different mindset. Uh, but again, you know, if you ask me what's going to happen, I think in two years, immigration is going to go right back to normal. I don't know if there'll be a catch up because I think there's some argument for taking in the right number of immigrants in a given year to make sure that we have the resources to help them settle. And if we do it too suddenly, it could be a risk for them and for us. Uh, but again, I, I think that the strategy of uh, both our governments, I mean, NDP, no offense, is less relevant, but both the liberals and conservatives are pretty pro-immigration. Uh, and so mm -hmm. I, I, I don't think that we sort of see a risk where we said, OK, all of a sudden our policy has changed or the view has changed. So, again, we may not have immigrants now. We're going to have them in two years. And when we have them in two years, my house in downtown Toronto is going to keep going up in value because there's only so much space. Yeah, I hope. yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah, one can hope. Um, okay, so before we get to our next segment, let's quickly talk about a topic I know that you've wanted to discuss for a while. Um, that's the cruise industry. Over the weekend, we saw a cruise ship uh, set sail in the Mediterranean for the first time in five months. It's the MSC Grandiosa. Uh, left a port of Genoa in Italy for a seven-night trip. Uh, stops in four ports. Um, I've mentioned this on the show before. I'm personally not a huge cruise fan. Um, that's unrelated to the coronavirus pandemic, although that did not help. But clearly, it's still a vacation option that some people are interested in. And that's despite the fact that we did see, I mean, cruise ships were at the center of a bunch of outbreaks in the early days of this pandemic. Um, Mark, what do you think of this restart in Europe? Uh, do you think that demand is going to recover? Oh, yeah. I mean, oh yeah, I, you probably want a longer answer. Um, I, I think, I, you know, expand, uh, expand. It, there have been other outbreaks, right? They that a, a cruise ship is a confined place. You know, I think the the Norwalk virus. I mean, there are other things that have happened on cruise ships, and I think, you know, I, I don't want to make fun of people who go on cruises just because I am similar to you. It's not the type of thing that I want to do uh, ever. Um, but uh, the point is that it doesn't matter what we say because they like to do it, and I think that. It's the type of thing, it, cult following may, may be not the right word, but they have a sort of small but very loyal following and people who do it keep doing it, right? It's sort of like people who mm -hmm. cruise and people who don't cruise. And so I think the people who cruise have been waiting to get back uh, and I think they're very excited about it. I think that it'll be interesting to see how they handle it. 
how they handle outbreaks, which will happen. I mean, I think the CEO Mm -hmm. of one of them, I don't remember which one said, listen, this is not about getting to zero risk. There is no zero risk. This is about reducing the risk enough so that for people, the trade-off between the risk and the reward makes sense. And this is something that I've been saying uh, in all sort of facets of life. We are not, I mean, our life in general is not zero risk. I think that now you have a greater risk of getting sick if you do certain things or passing this on. And so you're going to make some compromises, but others you will not. So given the activity, can you get the risk down to a level where it's then worth it for you to take to, to, to engage? Um, interestingly, I don't know if you noticed this, they said that uh, I think, I don't know if it was Carnival or the, the, the company that owns Grandiosa, I love that name. Uh, they said that they could be profitable at 50% utilization. And that, I wonder, I mean, it must be related to price because cruises, mm-hmm. uh, like airlines and hotels, they work on a discount model. So they sort of fill out uh, what they fill up what they can. And then when they have spare capacity, uh, as it gets closer to sale date, they obviously discount and discount. Uh, and so when I think about reduced capacity in those industries, so when I, I've talked about it with the airlines, you should actually look at reduced capacity as an opportunity to increase price, right? Because when you right. when it's the, the availability is more scarce, then you get to drive price because more people want it than, uh, than you could serve. However, so far, the actual uh, utilization is very low and the price is still low. So I spoke to somebody on my team uh, who's doing the research. Uh, a younger person on my team was telling me that uh, some of his friends are actually looking into cruising and they were saying that the price is pretty low. And so I think we'll see how that evolves over time. I think if they're able to say, okay, early next year, we're going to be at 50 or 60% folks. Uh, and by the way, we're not raising the price, but uh, don't look for discounts. They may find a way to signal that because when it's full, it's full. So that's the interesting thing that I'll be yeah. to see. Yeah, yeah. It makes sense to lower the prices right now to try to encourage people sure. to potentially get on these cruises. Won't be us though. Um, Okay. (laughs) No. Uh, Let's move on to part of the show where we dig into some of the issues that businesses are facing and get your ideas and your solutions for the fix. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Now, awareness about mental health issues has been on the rise over the last few years, and the COVID-19 pandemic has really continued that conversation and also exacerbated some of the issues and disorders that people are dealing with as they grapple with the pandemic. Um, It's a topic of conversation that is happening not just in broader society, but in the business world as well, and and what companies should be doing to help their employees. Uh, Many companies have started to offer um, employees different forms of help. For example, Starbucks in Canada, they're providing employees and family members uh, with access to a wellness platform, and they also provide mental health benefits of uh, up to $5,000 per year. Mark, as we continue to deal with the challenges that come with this pandemic, how should businesses be thinking about mental health issues and and what they should be doing for employees? 
Well, I, I want to start where you started, which is that I think it's a great thing in our society that the conversation about mental health has finally begun, right? I mean, if we think about, and this is a sort of a cliche, a lot of people say it, all the areas of the body where we know a lot uh, and talk a lot and a lot of research is done. Uh, up until recently, mental health was not at the forefront of the discussion, and now it is. And that was the case before mm -hmm. COVID. Uh, and now it's increasingly the case for uh, with COVID for two reasons. One is COVID will exacerbate mental health uh, conditions for people. It's just a big stressor and people who have trouble with anxiety uh, will have more trouble because the anxiety is there. The other thing that has been gigantic with COVID is telemedicine. And there's an intersection there. Uh, so in mental health, uh, there are many challenges to getting people to seek treatment. And they're related to access if you live in a remote place. Uh, they're related to cost because uh, prior to COVID-19, uh, the government covered mental health treatment was through psychiatrists, not psychologists, and the availability was limited. And so you either would get on a long waiting list to see a psychiatrist or pay to see a psychologist, which is not an option for many people. And the telemedicine applications are a very good solve for that. They also help reduce the stigma because you're not going to run into somebody you know. Uh, you know, I sort of think about this, if I go see somebody, a therapist, and you know, you're there at the office and you're in the waiting room and you don't wanna bump into somebody. Well, you don't bump into somebody if you're on the app. Now, if I sound like somebody who has a business interest in an online mental health platform, that's because I do. Um, I was just about to jump in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> give you Mark, a prompt. Reminder. Mark, something to say here. Um, but yeah. by the way, uh, I feel great uh, with that conflict here because I invested in the business because I know firsthand what the challenges are and I believe in mental health treatment and I know that mental health is infinitely treatable. Some cancers, there's only so much you could do. And then at a point, sadly, you give up. Mental health, there are very few cases that are completely untreatable, and that does happen. But largely, this is an illness category that if we as a society decide to invest and treat, uh, we actually get a lot better. So that's why I invested in the company. Uh, I didn't become a believer when I invested. It was the reverse. Uh, and that company, along with many others, of course, are seeing an explosion in demand now. Um, because of mental health, um, as I say, the need, but also the telemedicine application, which is just sort of it's the two things that are right at the intersection of what's needed right now. Mm -hmm. And so uh, looking at, at what businesses should be doing, um, what kind of potential services should they be offering their employees? How should uh, they, they approach this, especially in a pandemic, which as we have mentioned, has exacerbated a lot of these issues and then caused so, so many more <laughs> and stresses sure. and anxieties, as you mentioned. For sure. So one of the things that, uh, a piece of analysis that my company has done, not with this current asset that I happen to own, but with another client long ago, uh, we proved something that many people would talk about. There is a great return to businesses and society to, uh, I'll say, back up when they spend mental health dollars. What I mean by that is to say, there is, you know, you could spend on wellness and prevention, you could spend on early intervention and diagnosis, and you could spend on treatment. It's always a good idea to spend because you will always get a return. Uh, in society, you get a return in productivity overall and in reduced healthcare costs. In companies, you get a great return by reduced sickness days. And so the message uh, to companies is now and always spend the money here because it avoids having to spend money here and spend the money here, it avoids having to spend money there. So if you think about wellness and prevention, 
that is a broad category, everything from meditation apps and uh, uh, yoga classes and breathing, which for me has been an absolute game changer, meditative breathing, uh, and uh, to actually just having an open conversation with your employees about mental health and uh, discussing and being proactive about watching your employees. You know, my company is uh, a high intensity, high performance work culture, and uh, we tend to we tend to work our team very hard. We're conscious of that. Uh, people are stressed out. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm ambitious. My partner's ambitious. But we are very proactive about talking to people about mental health. And we're always watching to say, okay, who is looking like they need someone to talk to? And we make it okay for them to come and talk to us uh, and share everything they want to share. And then when we think there's an issue, we make sure to act. Uh, and so I think companies should have that mindset. In terms of I'll say which specific investments make sense or which companies to go for. Uh, I think that's a more complex decision than we could sort of go through on air here. But I would say today you're lucky because there's a multitude uh, of solutions out there and some of them you could buy directly and others are now, especially in the last two years, available through your insurance provider. So if you uh, get health insurance through you know, the big uh, company, you know, Great West Sun and Manu and those those players mm -hmm. and others, uh, they now have more options for you to pay into uh, so that you can augment the mental health. And again, the, the, the one message is the earlier, the better. Spend now. I mean, the whole an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. It really plays out in mental health and it plays out financially. Yeah. And we are seeing also uh, the conversations about the COVID-19 recovery. Many provincial uh, and as well as the federal government are talking about supports for mental health. Um, I know that I was watching today the coverage of the New Brunswick call for the election, and that was one of the first things that came out um, in terms of a platform. It's really something that uh, society, governments, businesses, everybody's talking about, especially in this pandemic. So um, I think that's a good thing. That's a fantastic thing that we're at least focusing on this, not just um, the you know economic toll of this pandemic. Um, but uh, before we wrap up the show, I do want to continue this conversation um, talking about that relationship between employers and employees. You mentioned uh, sick days. You know, there are a lot of employees are going through all sorts of different things, parents dealing with children at home, sending them back to school, how that's going to work. Um, what should business owners be thinking about when it comes to making accommodations for their employees during this pandemic? Um, should, is there a balance to strike? How do you, how do you approach that? What's the fix? Yeah, it's, it, it's complicated. There is a balance to strike, unfortunately, because uh, while businesses want to accommodate uh, some businesses, first of all, some businesses may require on-site presence. And so there's only so much they can accommodate an employee who's unable to come to work because they have childcare needs or because they uh, uh, just, you know, are immunocompromised you know, or, you know, for some reason they just can't make it to the office. Uh, I think they need to get creative and see what they can do. Uh, I haven't looked into this, so I'm saying this in a, in a way, in a data-free way. I'm sure that large U.S. companies are augmenting on-site childcare uh, for their employees. So, uh, you know, work, working in the U.S. as much as I did, you know, they were very good about having childcare on-site so that working mothers uh, are able to bring their child and actually have daycare uh, on-site for them. My guess is today, the large companies that have the resources and have the infrastructure are augmenting that and maybe even going later. 
Not everybody can afford to do that. Certainly small businesses can't. Uh, but you may find different ways to work with your employee's schedule to see if there are ways that you can get them to work. I think childcare is the biggest issue here, right? I think so you have mm -hmm. you have, you know, the potential for uh, individual sickness, but if you look at the numbers today, touch wood, uh, they're not that high. Everybody is going to have a childcare issue, right? I mean, that is all we are talking about in my house. Uh, that is all that everybody is talking about. Uh, we're not too complimentary of the government. We don't think they have a good plan. Some people are comfortable, some people are not. So you, you need to, first of all, like everything else, discuss the topic openly with your employees. You need to find solutions and make them transparent and you need to make them equal and fair for everybody. And I, and, and I didn't say that you have to accommodate 100% because the, if businesses accommodate 100% and by that I mean let people come to work or not and pay them regardless, I think at a certain point it becomes unsustainable. And remember, some businesses are in a tough spot already. So I think they need to do what they can, what is affordable, but then be very clear about it. And I think they need to then make sure that it is equitable across employee groups, because the larger the business, the greater likelihood you're going to have somebody say, well, why did you do for him what you didn't do for me? Uh, and it's not protecting yourself against um, a legal issue. That's part of it. It's just you want actually everybody to feel good about the fact that you've done everything you can do and you've done it in a fair way. Uh, and I think it is OK to say there are some people who can't work full time and we're not going to pay you full time. You can't push them to do that uh, beyond, I'll say, 15% without it being constructive dismissal. But I'm sure a lot of people may look for that. So you may find creative ways to fund part of that, uh, etc. You also may find that you want to be just a little bit more flexible on who can work from home. So if you're running a factory or a retail store, guess what? The work doesn't get done if your employees aren't there. But if you're in an office environment and you think that you need to be there, and I think everybody knows I think it's important to be there, that doesn't mean that everybody needs to be there every day. And that doesn't mean that for the next six months, you can't be more flexible. And it also doesn't mean that uh, you can't uh, survive with less profitability. You know, I've said this about businesses and about individuals. We do not, we're not deserving of the same profit or the same income as we got last year we're deserving of enough to keep us going so that we can make more later. So that's the way I look at it in my business. I'm going to do what I can afford. I don't expect to make the same this year uh, as I did in other years, of course, but as long as I could afford it and it's sustainable, I'm going to do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like uh, being flexible and having those conversations and, and transparency is really key. Uh, as we go through this time. Um, but Mark, that is, that is all the time that we have for the show. It flew by once flew by. again. Um, thank you so much for, for the conversation. Uh, for those of you watching, you can make sure uh, to rewatch the episode on Yahoo Finance Canada, where you can also find the latest news about the coronavirus pandemic and the impact on the economy. You can also check out the Crisis Management Podcast. It's available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Make sure you like us and subscribe and tune in next week for our next episode. Thanks so much for tuning in. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.